Uh, grew up in the south side of Chicago, mostly growing up in bad neighborhood, bad surroundings. I grew up on the south side of Chicago. Um, I was born to a single mom when she was 18 years old. Uh, we were a very close-knit family. We did life together every single day. My father was not involved in, our, in my life at all. We met, um, can I talk about the day before we met though? Because the day before we met, I found out I was pregnant. Called him and was like, hey, just so you know, I'm pregnant and it's not yours because we haven't met yet. And then we went on our first date anyway. We um, enjoyed each other's company, but because I was pregnant, we decided that we would just be friends with benefits. And then once I had my son, he was, Andrew was very active in the pregnancy. He came to doctor's appointments, he took me to work every day, he brought me food all the time. Started my career out in Iowa and uh, when I was down there, um, wanted more, wanted a family. Um, and I always like, loved today. Uh, so it just made sense in my mind to just make a family. So he invited me and my son to come to Iowa, and he called and said, I miss Aiden, you guys should move here. Uh, we ended up getting married in Iowa, uh, had another wedding back here in Chicago uh, with family and friends. Uh, and from there we thought, you know, everything would be, you know, bubble gum and rainbows, rainbows. or whatever, right? <laughs> Yeah. And so I went into, we went into a marriage not really liking each other at all. We argued a lot um, and we fought a lot. And then uh, we moved to Indiana and started coming to Living Stones. And I would say over the next year, our marriage um, went downhill. We had only been married a year at that point. Yeah, we pretty much became roommates. I think we were pretty much always roommates. Mm -hmm. The way we see it was more of a transactional type type of marriage at first. I, in the beginning of our marriage, was very aggressive. I was the leader of our household. I didn't uh, take a leadership role at, at home, understanding that um, through like marriage class encounter and other relationships that passivity is like a tool for the enemy for men. Like mm -hmm. passivity and isolation is the the quickest way to get a man off of his, his game and all for the assignment that God has presented all men to be leaders. We had all these tools, we knew all these good things, but we did not know how to implement it in our marriage. And so we still struggled. Um, and then I came to my inn, and uh, he was out of town with Aiden, and I went to Terry Harvey, and I told her, I'm filing for divorce today. And she affectionately told me, no, you're not. <laughs> you're going to talk to Pastor Ron before you do anything. Um, and I went to talk to Pastor Ron and I told him the exact same thing. And so um, Pastor Ron gave me a challenge and he said, stay in marriage class for six more months and pray and ask the Holy Spirit what it is that he will have you do and implement the things in marriage class. And as I started to do that, I feel like scales started falling from my eyes. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing that got our marriage back is uh, focusing on ourselves first, right? Like how does a man supposed to lead his family? Spiritual leadership um, is key. Uh, he began to bless us financially uh, and as well in our family. You know, yeah. Right now we have five kids. Never. Never dreamed <laughs> of having five children. It was Father's Day um, week 
and my son um, was sitting in the car and he was like, for Father's Day, I want to write daddy a letter of all the things that he's done for me. And so I was like, okay, great. What do you want me to write? Because at this point I'm frustrated and I'm irritated and I don't know anything that he's done for him. And he's just started listing off a ton of things. He taught me how to ride my bike. He taught me how to tie my shoes. He loved me when I was down. Like he gave me baths. He held me when I cried. He watched TV with me. And it was like such a Holy Spirit moment for me because as he talked, it reminded me of who my husband was and all the things that I had lost, all the things that I just dismissed about who he was and the great father that he was. And not just a great father, but a great husband and a great provider and a great pastor over our house. And I missed all of that because I was so focused on my own selfishness and on my own needs and on my own desires. And so in that moment, I told the Lord, like, I'm going to fight. And I can remember now the day that we renewed our vows and um, his vows when you said, what was the first thing you said? I like you, done. <laughs> he said, I like you. And I broke because honestly, that was all I ever wanted um, in our marriage. We lived... I don't know how many years in a marriage that we loved each other without a shadow of a doubt, but we did not like each other. And to be able to say, I like you and mean it was such a big thing. And now when stuff comes up, we know how to fight right. Like even our little sign, our four rules of fighting fair, like we take that seriously because our marriage is important and our family is important and the mission is important. And that's us. Yeah. This is our story. Isn't that awesome? I can't believe we get to do this stuff. Isn't this great? Just watching the Lord moving people's lives. And, of course, the purpose for these incredible videos is so that if you're sitting out here and you're in the midst of a storm or you're in the midst of a lot of pain or you're in the midst of hoping that God could do the same thing for you, that's the good news. He can. If he did it for them, he can do it for you. And I know there's a lot of people in life who feel like uh, their life is just a little bit too far gone, like they're a little bit too messed up. There's a little, they've, uh, they have a long list of regrets. In fact, I've met a lot of people who uh, they get to the middle of their lives, maybe they come to the Lord, or maybe uh, there's just been a big mess, a lot of messes. Uh, and they feel like they're just beyond the scope, beyond the reach of Jesus' ability to actually minister to them or change their situation. You know, when Shade said... Uh, when Drew said to Shade, I like you, and she started bawling. That's when I started bawling in my office. I mean, that was so powerful. And, uh, and to see how far they've come, and I mean, you know, to see the beautiful family and to realize that could have been another shattered home if it were not for Jesus. And if it were not, listen, if it were not for the church of Jesus Christ and for people, because how many know the grace of God comes through people. It's mediated through the church. That's why this is, this is God's idea. But I want you to hear something here. You know, when people come and say, we're quitting, what you're going to hear from our leadership is, no, you're not. Um, and you're going to hear, let's give God a chance. And aren't you grateful that there's places you can go and ministries you can go and you can hear the truth week after week and then you get a choice as to whether you want to apply the truth to your life and whether you want to allow the Holy Spirit to begin working in your life. How many of you know God's waiting to move in all of our lives? Amen. And, um, 
And so every time I see Drew and Jade, I'm just grateful that there are another couple who said yes to the Holy Spirit, and now they're going to have a legacy to leave. But let's get back. I want to pick up where Pastor Aaron left off last week, and he did a, a wonderful, wonderful job. Uh, I just so appreciate our teammate and give him a hand. But I want to talk this morning about people who feel like they're too far gone. And I want to go to, to Luke chapter 23. Pastor Aaron touched on this passage last week. I want to begin reading in verse 32. I want to talk about grace for the wasted life. Let me also mention before I get to Luke 23, I just got this uh, message on my uh, Facebook account from a, a friend who is my son Joel's age. So we go way back with this young man, but he, he really got messed up with drugs. Uh, and he writes us, he's been in rehabs and every kind of thing, and we haven't heard from him for years. But he said, uh, I've been brought, he goes, let me tell you a little bit about my road. He goes, I've been brought back to life from heroin slash fentanyl overdoses somewhere between 10 to 15 times. In 2019, I was in a medically induced coma for several weeks after having heart failure, kidney failure, and a bevy of other problems. And this guy's uh, not even 30 years old. He says, I feel like the devil or something bad, something that is evil has some kind of hold on me because I'm aware of all this stuff and I want help. And so, how many of you know there's help for people like this? And, uh, and when we talk about evil and the presence of evil and the demonic, this stuff is real. But how many of you know, I said, hey, we want to talk to you on Monday after this busy weekend. And there is hope for you because you need deliverance. And the draw that's in your life that keeps pulling you back to the very things that are trying to destroy you is demonic in its root. And he says, I want to be free. I want more. I know there's more. I know God has a plan for my life, but I keep feeling drawn back. So even this morning, if that describes you, there is freedom for you this morning in Jesus Christ, all right? Because this is what Jesus died for. Amen. So take a look. I got to preach fast and you got to listen fast this morning. All right, Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with Jesus. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right, one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. And the crowd watched, and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Now, very quickly here, there are people who have wasted their lives, and, uh, and such were some of us, amen? You wasted your life, and, uh, and no matter how long you lived, you look back and, and you go, this was an absolute train wreck. 
Maybe it was drugs, alcohol, sexual perversion. Maybe it's a life of crime. Maybe it's a life of violence. I don't know what it was. But how many of you know both of these men could, could stop at that point and say, we've wasted our lives, all right? Our lives have been a total train wreck. What's interesting, though, is what, is what I want you to see here this morning. People generally take one of two approaches, and I've witnessed this as a pastor over and over again. How many know they're both criminals? Uh, they probably knew each other. They're both nailed to the cross, same time. They're both coming to the end of their lives. Uh, they've had a similar history, similar set of experiences, similar brokenness, similar bondage. But how many of you know both of them took a completely different turn? And I want us to see that this morning because the Lord is waiting, but he's also looking for your response, for our proper response to the grace of God that's waiting for us. And I want you to see this. This is incredible to me. This man who is in agony, talk about having a, a bad day. Crucifixion is a form of capital punishment, so we know beyond a shadow of a doubt these people lived incredibly wicked and criminal lives, and now the violent lives that they lived are coming to an equally violent death, because I mean, you know, crucifixion is as bad as it gets. It was the most, most horrific form of punishment that human beings could ever come up with. It usually took a number of days for the person to expire. So this is a, a, a terrible, terrible day. How would you like to start your day, 9 o'clock in the morning, by being nailed to a cross to be crucified. And you know that you're going to have, again, mo probably multiple days of a very slow, agonizing, torturous death. I can't conceive of a more hopeless end than that. And then here's the good news. Somebody else is being crucified with you. His name is Jesus. So how many of you know the answer to your darkest day is nailed right next to you on, the, on a cross with an eyesight, which is amazing. So these criminals, again, are a picture of the way people respond to the pains of life. The first thief we, we encounter is full of self-righteousness. There's not an ounce of repentance or remorse in him. How many of you know he's probably a victim in his own mind? Uh, he's, he's up here. He doesn't deserve to be here. It's everybody else's fault. I've seen people that live life that way. It's everybody else's fault. He's hanging on a cross that's created by his own wicked choices. And yet he still has enough breath from the lungs that God gave him and from the oxygen God's put in his, in his mouth and his lungs. He still uses that to curse God. He says, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and saving us too while you're at it. How many of you know he's really not looking for a savior? He's looking for anyone that can remove him from the pain and the agony that he's currently experiencing. He just looks for somebody who'll get him off the cross. There's no sign of remorse, there's no brokenness, there's no humble repentance, there's no admission of guilt. And how many of you know, that I've, I've seen people like this that literally go to their graves not getting it. They go to their graves missing the grace that was available for them because they're so busy either looking for a, a quick escape or they're so busy looking to put the blame on somebody else. I mean, you know, that is a sure sign of death and despair and hopelessness. I don't recommend that at all this morning. Let me give you a better, a better picture. Look at what the other thief did. Verse 40. The other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
This guy started off in the wrong camp. In Matthew's gospel, it says both of those criminals were mocking Jesus. But at some point, the, the second thief here stops. He comes to his senses. And I want you to see what I believe maybe happened in this situation. All these people mocking around him. Hey, you saved other people, but you, couldn't sa you can't save yourself. You saved other people. You can't save yourself. How many of you know that I told you there's the, the seed of every testimony is the seed of hope? Now, the devil's mocking Jesus, but how many of you know in the mocking there's an element of truth? Listen to the first part of what he says. You saved others. How many can give an amen on that? Yes, he is the Savior of the world. You saved others. It was the second part that was the lie, but you can't save yourself. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels and saved himself, but he hung there on that cross because that was the way he was going to save us. And he chose not to save himself at that moment, but to save you and me and to save the two thieves on both sides. That was his intention. So look at what happens. I believe every time there's truth spoken, something awakens in our heart. Can you imagine with me that this thief is, is hanging there in agony, uh, listening to all the mocking, you saved others, but you can't save yourself. And that one little phrase, you saved others, maybe that sticks in his heart. Maybe there's something there where he says, wait a minute. He saved others. He saved others. He saved others. If he saved others, maybe he can save me. Because that's the purpose of a testimony. How I many know the devil can even use a mixed testimony, a twisted testimony, to provide hope in your heart? And I believe that one nugget of truth was something that this thief grabbed a hold of. Because look at what he says next. He says, uh, don't you fear God. Now, how many of you know it's the fear of God, the Bible says, it's the beginning of all wisdom. This guy realizes, I am only moments away from eternity. This is not the time to be a fool. This is not the time to be saying stupid things. And the fear of God grips his heart. Can I encourage you that the fear of God is, is one of the best things that can happen to us? It is an awakening in our hearts that the way that we're living is not pleasing to a holy God. And I can't think of a better time than when you're at death's door and you realize life is short. And at this point, this guy knows he's not getting off the cross. Death is certain. It's only how long. It's probably going to happen before the end of the day when the sun sets. But the fear of God enters his heart and he says, don't you fear God. And I just want to encourage us this morning. There's nothing greater than being able to have a heart that truly reverences God Almighty. That when we come before him in worship, oh, you know, part of what we're doing is we're asking the Lord to reveal our hearts, to show us what's going on. How many of you want a clear heart and a clear conscience before God? And so if a person comes and says, you know, I, I fear you, God, in a healthy way. I don't want to be on the wrong side of you. I want to be living as a son or a daughter. The fear of God is the first step. And so this man is moving right now in the fear of the Lord. And look at what happens next. He admits his own sinful responsibility for his condition, and he's willing to accept it. He says this, we deserve our crimes. How I many you know there's not one of us in this room that can experience the grace of God until you stop blaming everybody else and you realize you're a sinner and you're part of the problem? You know, I love the way uh, Aiden sat down with mom and said, Mom, I need you to help me write out a card for dad, and I want to highlight all the great things about dad. And it was at that moment, as Shade is writing down all the great things about Drew, that she has an epiphany. Maybe Drew's not the problem. Or maybe he's not the whole problem. 
And I think she said it very well. It was my selfishness. You know, if, wouldn't it be great if every one of us in this room would just stop focusing on everybody else and just say, I'm the problem. Lord, change me. Not fix my spouse. Lord, change me. Not change the whole world or the circumstances. Change the condition of my own heart. Because that's part of the grace of God to allow us to own what is ours. And how many of you know there's not a one of us in this room that's not a sinner in desperate need of mercy? Now listen to what the Bible says. Psalm 32, verse 5. Finally, I confessed all of my sins to you, Lord, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. And I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And look what happened. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Isn't it amazing when we confess our rebellion to the Lord and we say, I'm the guilty party. God says, I forgive you, and he removes all of our guilt and shame. I want you to see this thief is demonstrating a perfect pathway to, to, the, to salvation. You own the responsibility. You say, don't you have a fear of God? You live in the fear of God. You own your sin. You cry out to God, and you, and you begin to turn to him, and you admit that you deserve the crimes. And here's the beauty of this. He acknowledges Jesus' own righteousness. He says, this man, pointing to Christ, this man has done nothing wrong. Now, I want you to notice this. Everybody around is mocking Jesus. This thief declares with his own mouth, this man has done nothing wrong. Once again, how many of you are grateful for the righteousness of Jesus Christ and, and that his, his perfect life has taken the place of my imperfect life and your imperfect life? So we're sitting here this morning because he has done nothing wrong. That's why we're here this morning. The world's mocking Jesus. In the midst of it, all you can hear is one man speaking the truth. This man has done nothing wrong. Finally, he pleads for help. He says, Lord, remember me. Now, this is a perfect example of saving faith. It is the person who realizes they can't save themselves. I mean, you know, when you're nailed to a cross and you've lived a completely wasted life and you have nothing good to show for your life and you cry out, Lord, help. That is a beautiful picture of salvation. It's a beautiful picture of humility. And I just want to say this, you know, some people don't like preaching this passage because it sounds like cheap grace. It sounds like we're giving people a get-out-of-jail-free card. But I just want to tell you this. Nobody gets to heaven without genuine repentance. Nobody is saved by just going, oh, yeah, Jesus, forget, I, I, I believe in you now. Right here as I'm getting ready to die. Please, please take me into heaven. Can I, can I just pop anybody's bubble? If that's your escape hatch plan... I just want to tell you, it is absolute arrogance to suggest that you know how you're going to leave and what's going to happen and what you're going to do, when you're going to do it, uh, because we don't control those things. And it's really a very foolish thing to think that you're going to take God and his plan of salvation on your own terms. Amen. I've heard people, you know, I use the illustration of flipping off the light switch. You know, you're living in darkness all your life, but, but right before you die, you're going to decide at that moment you're going to invite Jesus into your life, and you're going to flip the light switch on, and the light's going to come on, and you're going to be saved. What an arrogant, selfish, man-centered understanding of salvation. I just want to tell you, we can't even move in the fear of God without the grace of God. We can't even repent without the grace of God. 
We know nothing about how long we're going to be here, or how long we're going to live, or what the circumstances of our life are. It is incredible presumptuousness to suggest that somehow we determine the outcome of our future. So I want you to understand, we should all grieve over the wasted years of our life. And young people, I want to encourage you, the question you should be asking is not, how close can I live on hell's doorstep? And hopefully someday just do enough good that I can slide into heaven by literally the skin of my teeth. What a stupid question. It's a question from a person who's still very selfish and who still doesn't get it. Because the greatest life that we could possibly live is the life that's full of Jesus Christ. It's a life of freedom. It's a life of wholeness. It's a life of purpose. And it suggests that somehow we're getting gypped by giving our life to Christ as a young person. What are you talking about? It's the greatest thing you can possibly do is surrender your life to Christ now and not have any wasted years of your life. And I want you to see this. This is powerful. Jesus replies, I assure you, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, the Bible says about Christ, Hebrews 7, verse 25, therefore, he, talking about Jesus, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Here's why. He always lives to make intercession for them. Now, this is powerful. What was the secret to this evil, wicked thief. One pastor calls him a revolutionary. He was an evil man. He lived a wasted life. He starts off as a mocker, just like everybody else. What causes his eyes to be opened? At the moment, at at the very end of his life, what causes his eyes to be opened? I believe it's the fact that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for his people. And I want you to see what it says earlier in this passage. As Jesus is on the cross, and I want you to picture this. His, of course, he's, the nails have pierced right through his heels. He's pierced in his side. He's beaten beyond recognition. And on that cross, to be able to even breathe, you had to push yourself up with the nails that have pierced through your heels in agony. Push yourself up just to catch a breath before you collapsed again onto your hands, which sent pain searing through your chest and lungs and hands and everything else. I mean, you know, just to breathe was, was an agony. And, and Jesus, in the midst of this dance of going up and down just to survive, in the midst of all that, he says, Father, forgive them. With the words, he can hardly get enough oxygen in his lungs to speak. What's coming out of his mouth? Not mockery, but forgiveness. And I want you to see this. The first fruits of Jesus' act of forgiveness on the cross, that the veil of the temples rendered in two, the Bible tells us in another of the epistles, the first act of his act of forgiveness sent ripple effects all around him. And I believe the first fruit was the man nailed right next to him. Because how many of you know he heard? He heard. He heard Jesus in his agony praying for him. And his heart was, I believe, convicted. And who knows the ripple effects that went from that moment when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And now here we are today. We're the beneficiaries of the mercy of God and the forgiveness of Jesus. It's amazing. Again, the thief was the first man to enter paradise after the veil of the temple was torn asunder. And I want you to see something. And think about this with me. If Jesus Christ can save the most hardened of criminals at his personally weakest moment, 
I mean, this is as weak as the Son of God is. I want to ask you this question. Please follow with me. What in the world can Jesus not do now that he's been exalted and seated at the Father's right hand and given all glory and all power and all dominion and all might, what can he not do when he's at his best and not at his weakness? If at his weakness... He can save somebody like that. See, here's my point. We all know people like this. We all know people. You got people in your family that are so far from God, and they're so hardened, and they're so broken, and they're drug addicted, and they're lost, or they're whatever it is that they're dealing with, but they're lost. What is it that Jesus cannot do? What heart is it that Jesus cannot save? If in his weakness and covered in blood and barely able to breathe, if he can save that person, I'm telling you, he's in his A game right now. All authority, power, dominion is placed under his feet. What can he not do from a place of strength? I'm wanting to build faith in your heart this morning that there's nobody outside the reach of Jesus. If he can save the worst of sinners... At the moment of his greatest weakness, what could he do now? <laughs> Don't tell me he can't do it. Amen. I want you to picture it from the thief's side. Literally, he, he is standing on the front porch of hell. Can you imagine being this far from eternal damnation? You know, Jonathan Edwards got a lot of grief over his sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon, but only from religious people he gets grief. <laughs> and lost people. Because he had the image in that sermon, it's a powerful image of, of a spider dangling from, from its little thin uh, web right there, dangling over the fires of hell, only suspended by one little hair of, of the grace of God. And it put fear in people's hearts as it should because they realized how close all of us are to an eternal damnation, eternal separation from God. This thief is literally dangling over the flames of hell, only moments knowing that before the sun sets, he's gone. And the devil is having a party. Because how many of you know the devil has had control of a lot of people for a long time? And he's looking forward to eternal torment because that's the end of the party for everybody who rejects Jesus. How many know the devil throws lousy parties, but he tells you that the party is really going to be great down there? But can I just tell you, he's a liar. He's setting you up for a life, eternal life of misery and suffering and separation. And this guy is literally hanging from on the precipice of hell. And hell is already making plans for a big victory celebration. And then check this out. At the last minute, mercy steps in. At the last minute, Jesus steps in. And we sang about today, you can hear the sound of the chains clanking off the ground as they're falling off. And all hell's having a fit because the party just got ruined by the ultimate demonic party pooper. His name's Jesus Christ, all right? I mean, you know, when a prominent person passes away, we're always interested in their last words or their last act because it's important. Can anybody think of a more prominent person than Jesus Christ? I want you to see this. What was Jesus' final act? He saved the worst kind of sinner. 
the last thing Jesus did on planet Earth before his resurrection was to save a wicked, wicked person. How I many you know the worst thing that the religious people could say about Jesus was that he was a friend of wicked sinners? And what was the last thing Jesus left us with? Saving the most wicked of sinners. In fact, check this out. Jesus' last companion on earth was a convicted felon. Pretty amazing. Last conversation he had before his death was with a convicted felon. And I want you to see this. We'll end with this. It's such a beautiful picture of grace. This man was nailed to a cross and not going anywhere. Talk about being a captive audience. All he could do was two things, but these are the only two things necessary this morning to be saved. Are you ready for this? All he could do was move his head and gaze upon Jesus and see the beauty of the Lord. And the only other thing he could move, because the rest of his body was nailed down, the only other thing he could move was his lips and his tongue to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to confess his need for a Savior. He wasn't baptized. He didn't go to a membership class. He wasn't part of a church. He never took communion. He never had a quiet time. Now, please hear me. All those things are vital, but they're not necessary. Now, it's sad that he never got to, listen, it's sad that he never got to enjoy the Lord on earth and that he spent so much of his time hurting himself and hurting other people. It's a tragedy. I mean, a wasted lives are a tragedy. Can I just challenge somebody out here today that needs to hear this? Quit wasting the life God's given you and respond to the grace of God. It's not, there's no merit in going to your grave, having wasted most of your life, chasing you and chasing your empty dreams or whatever. Stop it. Die to all that. God has given you a life to live for him. Use it for his glory. There's not a one of you that's too far gone in this room to be redeemed this morning. And I mean, you know, it's not even about the end of your life and what you and I accomplish. It isn't even about that. This man is spending eternity with the Lord. How I many you know that's a great thing? But he missed the one opportunity he had on this side of eternity to do something special for the glory of God. And that's my plea to you this morning is don't live a wasted life. Don't have years of regret. Follow the Lord when you're young. Give him everything when you're young. And all he's looking for... All he's looking for is for you to gaze upon his beauty and to see how awesome he is. Paul says that we're transformed into his image by gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. And then you simply move your mouth and you say, Jesus, that's what I want. I I, want to know you. So check this out. All of his life, he's... He is a thief. He's stealing. He's robbing. He's grabbing. He's, he, 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 all he cares about is himself. He's going, 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 and grabbing, grabbing, grabbing. And isn't it interesting that at the end of his life, he can't steal anymore. His hands are nailed down. He can't pickpocket anymore. He can't rob from people anymore. But all he says is, Jesus, remember me. And check this out. <laughs> Instead of grabbing and grasping, he simply receives, which is what beggars do, 
And I mean, you know, at the moment that he said, Jesus, remember me, he got all the fullness of the treasures of the entire cosmos <laughs> given to him in one moment as a gift, as a gift. Isn't it ironic that what we spend our lives chasing after and grasping for, grace wants to simply give it to us in greater abundance than we ever could have imagined if we were trying to do it ourselves. What an incredible picture of the goodness of God. Will you stand to your feet with me this morning? I want our ministry team to come up. Listen, there are so many people full of remorse for the pain of the past, for the disappointments of the past, for the way things did not work out, for dreams that you felt like were shattered. Maybe you're watching this video today and you're like, you know what? I wish the story of my marriage would have turned out differently, but I, it, it hasn't turned out differently. And you're, you're full of pain and disappointment right now. Listen, Jesus can redeem all of it. Whatever we're willing to bring to the cross in humility, he can take our, the ashes and turn them into beautiful things. And the whole purpose of the, of the thief on the cross is to tell us you're never too far gone. As long as there's breath. Yes. As long as there's breath, there's hope. If you'll simply turn it all to the Lord, confess your need, come humbly before God. There's some resurrections God wants to do this morning in people's hearts. Some of you might not know Christ. Today is your day. Surrender to the grace of God. Embrace the grace of God. But wherever you're at today, I just, here's what I want you to hear from the Holy Spirit. You're not too far gone. So I'm going to pray. I want you to not to leave this morning. I want you to slip out of your seat, come running down here. I want you to, to, to do a transaction with God today and, uh, and come and come into agreement with the purposes of God for your life. So, Father, thank you for this amazing story of a man we don't even know his first name. But we're talking about your grace in his life. Lord, may that awaken in our hearts. Maybe you got a family member that's lost, so far lost, but they're not without hope. So, Lord, we pray for these family members. We pray for friends. We pray for neighbors. We pray for people that are far from you, God. Bring them home. Let us see a great move of God. Let the lost come home. Let the, let the backslidden come home, God. Let us see a great harvest of souls. Lord, may the river of the Holy Spirit begin rising even in this place today. Thank you, Lord. You're redeeming and you're restoring. We give you praise for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen, amen. amen. Hey, we love you all. Don't forget marriage class, 4 o'clock today. If you need prayer, come on down. We want to minister to you.